0: First Peter chapter one, beginning where we left off in verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower fails away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, This is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Peter knows the truth about suffering, about pain, about persecution, about hardship. And the great theme of this letter is God's grace. And the living hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter has drawn attention to the source of our salvation in verses 1 and 2. The security or the guarantee of our salvation in verses 3 through 5. The joy of our salvation in verses 6 through 9. And then the Old Testament testimony as the theme of our salvation in verses 10 through 12. And the angel's fascination with our salvation at the end of verse 12. Peter has touched on our response to that salvation in verses 13 through 17. How we're to be holy before God. In verses 14 through 16, how we're to honor God in verse 17. And then Peter wrote about the cost of our salvation in verses 18 and 19. We're not purchased by temporal things, but by something that's eternal the precious blood of Jesus. God planned our salvation and Christ's sacrifice before the foundation of the earth in verses 20 through 21. And now Peter is going to write about the vehicle of our salvation. We are born again. In the New Testament, it's called born from on high. And the new birth is brought about by the Spirit of God working in relationship with the word of God, and that new birth is characterized by a spirit-directed love in verse 22, a spirit-delivered life in verse 23, a spirit-determined legacy. That is, our future is intact and has been established by God. Our past is secure. Our present is in Christ. Our future is certain. So over and over again, Peter is writing and he's saying, you're different. You are Christians. We are Christians. We are born again. We are Christians. Our life should be characterized by love. We are Christians. Our life is not Temporal, but eternal. We are Christians because we have heard the gospel and we've received Jesus, and something supernatural and powerful and eternal has been accomplished inside of our hearts. Or not. The reality is, just as I prayed earlier, each and every person who's listening to the sound of my voice. Is on one or the other side of a deep divide. And that deep divide is saved or not saved, forgiven or remaining in sin. And so Peter has encouraged the believer, the Christian, to live in hope in verses 1 through 12, to live in holiness in verses 13 through 21. And now, and now the appeal is to live in harmony in verse 22 all the way to the end of the chapter and even beginning in the first part of chapter 2. And by the way, would you say that your life is lived in hope? Is your life lived in holiness? Is your life conspicuously empty by the absence of hope? Is your life particularly marred by the absence of holiness. Because the reality is if your life isn't lived in hope and if your life isn't lived in holiness, then the chances of it living in harmony are not good. As a matter of fact, harmony is a foreign word in many hearts and homes and sadly even in the church. Our lives as Christians within the body of Christ are supposed to be marked by unity and love for one another. And we're supposed to be characterized by our love for those who have no love for us. But sadly, we're often seen by both the believer and the unbeliever as fragmented and factious and and divided and distressed. Accusations abound. Unity and love are desirable by most people, but for whatever reason, discernment and doctrine seem less desirable. Peter doesn't preach unity at the expense of purity. And Peter doesn't preach unity at the expense of truth. But Peter has in his mind the backdrop of the suffering and the pain and the persecution. And because the suffering and the pain and the persecution has been brought on by an onslaught of people in the world. I think what he's suggesting to us, it ought not to be caused by each other. Don't you think that there's enough grief in this world? And isn't there enough pain by the devil that we don't need to perpetrate more pain and suffering on each other? I think that that's part of the point. Clearly, the people in Peter's audience are going through trials. Remember in verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various Trials, and no doubt some were hurting, and no doubt some were facing a constant barrage of testing, and some were facing a constant barrage of temptation, temptation to conform, temptation to compromise, and some were facing temptation to just give up altogether. And I wish I could say that that weren't true of you, that no one here is Facing that kind of trial or facing that kind of temptation. Nobody knows your heart but you. And nobody knows better than you the emptiness and the darkness and the loneliness. And you're wondering if it's even worth it. Has that thought crossed your mind lately? Peter reminds the reader of their need to pull together instead of pulling apart. Can we build a community of mutual support? Can we build a community of love? And can we build a community of kindness? And my answer is going to shock you. Probably not. Unless there's a miracle. Unless there's a miracle, unless there's a supernatural work on the part of God moving, changing, transforming, making sure that something is fundamentally different on the inside so that things can be different on the outside. Now, clearly, we have the example in the instruction of Jesus in John's gospel. With only hours left to live, Jesus takes a towel. He washes the disciples' feet. You'll remember in John chapter 13, verse 24 through 35, Jesus writes, or he says, a new commandment. I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, you might think that the instruction and the command of Jesus would be enough to actually obey Jesus. Good news and bad news. Good news, Jesus has given us the command. Bad news, impossible to follow. Unless you've been born again. Unless you've been fundamentally forever changed from the inside out. In other words, you can have affection for one another. You might even have a modest appreciation for one another. But you'll never be able to live the way that Peter is talking about unless there's been a radical transformation that has taken place inside of your heart. How can we live in holiness? How can we honor God? How can we live in harmony with one another? It must be through the supernatural presence of the Holy Spirit imparting to us a supernatural love commanded by Jesus and demanded as the sure sign from a watching world that you are who you say that you are. And so Peter writes about a spirit-directed love in verse 22. Look what it says. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Now the text is rich and each word is important. This is no ordinary love. This is a spirit-directed love. And it says, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. Now, I want you to note something rather quickly. Peter points to several things in the passage. Each and every one deserves careful consideration. Because a spirit-directed love includes, number one, obedience to the truth, number two, purity of soul, and number three, a profound lack of hypocrisy. And so the spirit-directed love is going to include all of those elements. Obedience to the truth, purity of soul, a lack of hypocrisy. And so, again, when it says, since you have purified your soul's In obeying the truth, the truth obeyed, listen carefully. It doesn't mean each and every truth that has ever been discovered by humanity through science or observation or through philosophical inquiry or revelation. The truth that Peter is talking about in this passage is the truth of the gospel, It's the truth of the gospel. And so that's what he's saying. We have obeyed the gospel. How have we obeyed the gospel? Remember, by believing the gospel. Jesus had said to to people, repent, every one of you, and obey the gospel. After Jesus rose from the dead, Peter speaks to the religious leaders in Jerusalem, and he says, repent, of your sin and obey the gospel believe the gospel believe that Jesus loves you and died for you and rose from the dead for you Peter's not promoting a works-based righteousness or a works-based based faith Paul Wrote in Romans chapter 6 verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience. You are slaves of the one whom you obey. Either of sin resulting in death. Or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Saving faith brings with it the ability. To believe the gospel. To obey The gospel and believing and obeying the gospel gives us the ability to manifest the love of God in our lives and share that love with others. This becomes part of the amazing point that Peter is trying to make. So what does obedience to the truth include? Love one another fervently. Because you've obeyed the truth because you've experienced life. And see, that's part of what the point is, is, is happening. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. It speaks of an event that has taken place in the past. That has present effects. And ongoing effects. And so he says, love one another fervently. And by the way, the word fervently is interesting. It's the Greek word ektonos or ektenos. And it doesn't simply mean with warmth. It, it, when it says love one another fervently, it means with a particular kind of intensity. And by the way, the expression ectonus was used to describe physically when an athlete would prepare for a game. Um, Those of you who've been watching the World Cup, you'll note that before the game, they stretch. Or if you watch tennis at Wimbledon, or if you watch an athlete of any sort, they will take their muscles and they will stretch the muscle, and they stretch the muscle so that you can exercise the muscle to the greatest extent. That's the point. That's what that word means. It means to stretch out so that what you're stretching will be useful. And that's part of the point. The Lord might say to you, I need you to love that person. And you go, that's a stretch. (laughs) And the Lord says, exactly, exactly. I'm gonna need you to stretch. I'm going to need you to stretch in such a way that your love will be manifest. Because clearly, remember, in the New Testament, Jesus says that there's two kinds of people in the world. Not Italian people and people who wish they were. This is a different, that's a different quote. That's an apocryphal quote, by the way. Jesus never said that. There's two kinds of people in the world. Those who are easy to love. And those who are less easy to love. I know what some of you are thinking. You're you're probably thinking right at this very moment, I thank God that I'm in the category of those people who are easy to love. (laughs) But I want you to think just for a moment of a person who's not in that category. A person where it takes a little bit of a stretch. You're going to have to stretch not just your mind and and not just your physical circumstances, but you're going to have to stretch in such a way that you're going to honor God. And that's part of the point. In a few chapters, by the way, if you just turn in 1 Peter to chapter 4, verse 8, there's another little clue that's given because Peter will write, And above all things... Have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Same word. I'm I'm going to need you to stretch. How? Stretch far enough. So that sins can be covered. How far are you going to have to stretch. In order to cover the sins of your husband or your wife or your children. And the love that Peter's talking about isn't the normal word agape that you normally see in the New Testament that describes God's love, but it's the word Philadelphia, philos. It's 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 brother love. We sometimes inaccurately translate that brotherly love. You know, when we think of Philadelphia, we think, of the city of brotherly love. But Philadelphus, in this particular instance, it means the kind of love that takes place among brethren. And in the Greek culture and in the Greek society, you would not use that word to describe anyone other than typically a blood brother, a flesh and blood relative. You know, you and I, we use the term Uh, brother in Christianity loosely, that doesn't mean that we share the same DNA or that we share um, a a same genetic signature that is the same mother and father. But this becomes the point. In other words, a kind of affection that was usually only uh, available to family members now becomes available to everyone. Kenneth Weiss, writing about this, says, these Christians to whom Peter was writing already... They had a fondness and an affection for one another. The feeling of fondness and affection was perfectly proper in and of itself, but... It could degenerate into an attachment for another, which could be very selfish. But if these Christians could blend the two kinds of love, saturate the human fondness and affection with the divine love with which they are exhorted to love each other, then the human affection would be transformed and elevated into a heavenly thing. Then the fellowship of saint with saint Would be a heavenly fellowship, glorifying Jesus, most blessed in the results. There is plenty of philae, fondness, and affection among the saints. And too little of agape, which is divine love. It's his way of saying, look, there is a mental and an emotional affection that we have towards one another or we don't. But the Bible says, guess what? This mental, emotional affection isn't what defines our friendship and our relationship and our willingness to respond to one another. So he talks about also the purity of soul. Now, the purity of soul doesn't come from some personal cleansing or or personal willpower. He's not talking about having abandoned simply a former way of living. The purity isn't a human work, but rather this is the divine work of God. This is the purging of sin that accompanies saving faith. And that's what he's saying. Now, see, I want you to just think about what Peter's explanation is. Why did God purge you of your sins? The first answer that you might give is so that I could be accepted by God. And and you would be right. That wouldn't be a wrong answer. Being purged of your sins in order to be acceptable to God is absolutely right and appropriate. But Peter is taking it to the next step. He's introducing to us the idea that, guess what? Your sins have been purged not simply so that you could be acceptable to God. Think about this. He's saying your sins have been purged so that you can be acceptable to each other. Yeah, that should come as a shock and as a surprise to some of you. You mean God has purged me and cleansed me so that I could be A person who could love other people and and be loved by them. That's exactly the point that Peter is making. Remember, Peter has already written that we are saved according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood in verse 2. We know that we are made pure so we can be accepted by God. But you may have forgotten that you've been made pure so that you could have the wherewithal to be able to minister to one another and provide for one another and support one another and encourage one another and love one another. That's part of the point. And by the way, when he's talking about purity of souls, souls here stand for the entire moral and spiritual being. In verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, look what it says, the salvation of your souls. That's what he's talking about the entire being, the entire spiritual being. And by the way, the purification is stated as a fact of the past with abiding results in the present. So obedience to the truth, listen carefully, obedience to the truth, not just any truth, but a specific kind of truth. It's obedience to the truth of the gospel Secures this kind of purging, this kind of purity, this kind of acceptance. That's the point. And it says, not only obedience to the truth and a purity of soul, but a lack of, of hypocrisy. Look what it says, in sincere love of the brethren. And by the way, the word sincere is not the normal word that would be used. It's a different word. You know, the word that we have, you and I have, sincere, it comes from a Latin word. sine, which means without. sire, which means wax. In the Latin, they use the word because they would make statues. They didn't have iPods and iPads and they didn't have digital photography. And so in order to take a picture, you would typically take a rock and you would chisel the rock and you would make the image of the person that you love and sometimes you would make a mistake you know in Photoshop you can go and you can doctor the photo but if you if you hit the chisel just right and you knock off that nose some people wouldn't want to start all over again particularly if you have a nose like this and so they would take marble powder and they would mix it with wax and then they would go and they would stick that nose back on. And because of the wax and the marble powder, they would, they would just carefully massage it so that the nose would go back on the face. And then your, your dead relative would be standing in your, in, your, in your garden. There would be your dead relative's head. And the sun would beat down and the wax would melt. And the nose would fall off. And so when you bought statues in the marketplace, the, they, they would say you bought it sincerely. Sincerely. That it is what it is, that it is what it, it says it is. But and, and this word comes from the Greek into the Latin language. It, it's a word that literally means without hypocrisy. And here Paul Peter knows the dangers of hypocrisy and Paul knows the dangers of hypocrisy. In Romans chapter 12, verse 9, Paul writes, let love, same context, let love be without hypocrisy. Peter says, the sincere love of the brethren. In other words, sincerity is what sets the standard. And so the word hypocrisy started off life As a word in the Greek language, which means one who receives an answer. And then in the Greek culture, it came to mean actors who would rehearse lines for plays. And so in the Greek culture, they would have masks and they would have mechanical devices. So that when you wore the mask and you used the mechanical device, you could change your voice or your inflection. So that you could be, become whatever character you needed to be. As a matter of fact, in the ancient Greek world, as well as the modern American culture, hypocrisy is sort of the lubricant of our society. People pretending to be Things that they're not necessarily. And that's the idea. In case someone wanted to pretend to be something that they're not. And so now think about what Peter is saying. You would think, you would think, you would think that just simply obeying the command of Jesus would be sufficient motivation, but Peter is asking you to do something else. Not in simple duty. Or simple discipline to love each other but to do it because you really want to because your heart is changed that's the idea because in case someone wanted to default to some kind of legalistic requirement Peter says no no do this with a pure heart Do this not because you are compelled to because it's the right thing to do and it's the responsible thing to do. Do it because something's changed fundamentally inside of you with a pure heart. We're compelled from within because of the fruit of the Holy Spirit inside of our hearts. Remember what the fruit of the Spirit is in Galatians chapter 5 verse 16. And then again in Galatians chapter 5 verse 22. We walk by the Spirit. You won't carry out the desire of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love which is manifested in joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And there's no law against these kinds of things. Well, you know, there's this, there's this requirement. If you're a Christian, you really have to, to care about each other. Sometimes people will say to me, you're a pastor. It's your job to love these people. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it is my job. But I have a shock and a surprise for you. It's your job as well. This is not a job assignment that's just restricted to the pastor. You're to do it honestly, in purity, without hypocrisy. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote, A perfect man would never act simply from a sense of duty. Duty is only a substitute for love, like a crutch, which is a substitute for a leg. Most of us need a crutch from time to time, but of course it is idiotic to use the crutch when our own legs can do the journey on their own. Some of you have a religious crutch. The religious crutch is... The Bible says, so I get, okay, I love you. Okay, and why do you love me? Jesus commands it. You know, oddly enough, if that were a simple motivation and you simply did it from duty, at least you're doing it. But Peter calls on us to do something very much different. And he points to a spirit-delivered life as the reason. Look what it says in verse 23. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. I need you to think about the context of of what you're reading. This isn't just simply a verse about being born again, although it is that. Remember, you've been made pure, and we already talked about that. I know I was made pure so that I could be acceptable to God. Yes, that's true, but you've also been made pure so that you can love each other. Great. You've been born again, right? I've been born again so that I could be acceptable to God so that I don't have to go to hell so that I can go to heaven. Yes, all of that's true. But you've been saved for way more reason than to simply avoid hell and to inherit heaven. You've been born again so that you can care about each other and so that you can love each other. That's the added benefit. That's part of the point that Peter is making in verse 23. And so again, Peter's comment about being born again is in the context of a call to harmony, to love each other in purity, fervently, sincerely, because we're born again. Look what it says. Having been born again. Those four words in the English language One very long Greek word. It's a Greek verb. It's in the perfect past participle. And again, that's not going to mean anything to most of you. But let me help you think through what it indicates for the text. The emphasis, again, is on a past event with ongoing results in the present having been born again. Here's the point that he's making. You've been born again. That past experience has present results that have ongoing benefits. And part of the benefit is for you to love each other. Now, I want you to think this through. Because, again, tragically, whenever I speak and I speak to this many people, I'm speaking to two groups of people people who have been born again in the past because they really have entered into life in Christ and those who have never been born again. They've never experienced forgiveness. They've never experienced what it means to be attached to the Father. They've never experienced the joy and hope that comes from being born again. And I I certainly want to talk about that, and I will talk about that. But for the person who's not born again... The kind of love that is being spoken of in this particular passage, the expectation of fervent, stretching love that we're to extend to one another becomes impossible for the person who's not born again. Now, a person who's not born again can love their children, and they can love their grandchildren, and they can love their husband or their wife. They can love... People, They can have a, 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 an affection for people. But the kind of love that he's talking about is very, very different. As a matter of fact, Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 6 verse 3, or do you not know that as many of us as who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. Paul isn't talking about a religious ritual. He's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about a spiritual immersion in Christ that results in a radical way of living and thinking that's that the Bible uses the term born again to describe it. That the darkness and the death is so profound and so different that there's that trying to find words that describe what it means to come from that particular place to this particular place, that's that's what it's talking about. The Bible talks about this radical transformation of going from darkness to light and death to life. So, if someone were to ask you the question, Are you born again? there's typically only two answers that are available yes, I am, or no, I'm not. Because if you came to the answer, well, I don't know or I'm not sure the kind of radical transformation that the Bible speaks of you're detached from an old life, you we're dead in trespasses and sins. You receive Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you make this journey from death to life, from darkness to light. It's not a religious acquisition. It isn't where you buy a Bible and you go to church and you speak differently. It's a radical transformation. That has taken place because you're different. 2 Corinthians 5.17 talks about it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The word creation is the same word that we get genus from. It's, it's a word that was used in taxonomy to describe something that has never before ever been seen. And it's so traumatically different from anything else that has existed, you have to give it a whole new classification. That's what it says. If any person's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Someone once asked Billy Graham, okay, if Christianity is valid, then why is there so much evil in the world? And Billy Graham responded, with so much soap. Why are there so many dirty people in the world? Christianity, like soap, must be personally applied if it's to make a difference in our lives. What a great line. If Christianity is real, why is there so much evil? (laughs) If soap is real, why are there so many dirty people? Hey, Christianity is real. Not because it's philosophically true, although it is. Not because it's historically accurate, but it is. It's because a real Jesus really rose from the dead and is really alive. To extend an invitation of love and hope. And so when he says, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, the seed represents the source of life. And we know that life produces life, but nothing in the material world has the ability to produce spiritual life or eternal life. There is no material seed. There's no magic physical thing that if you eat it or ingest it that is going to give you the kind of life that the Bible is talking about. In order to have eternal life it has to come from an eternal source and so Peter says that eternal source that incorruptible source is the word of God which lives and abides forever. No wonder Jesus said, my words are spirit and they are life in John chapter 6, verse 63. Well, how do I know that they're true? (laughs) I had a kid call me on my radio program last week. From the sound of his voice, he sounded like he was 10 years old. He calls me up and he says, what evidence is there for God? I said, I'm more than happy to answer your question, but, but let me ask you a question first. Um, hey, how old are you? I'm 28. The kids, maybe 10, right? I go, if you're 28, then what year were you born? Okay, if you were really 28, you would know the year of your birth. I just don't want to give out my age. Okay, I still want to answer your question, but I want you to do me a favor. I want you to pinch yourself. What? Pinch yourself. What? Pinch yourself. Okay. Did you do it? Yeah. Are you there? Yeah. You're real? Okay, you want evidence that there's a God? How do you explain you? Well, my mom gave birth to me. 28-year-old wouldn't say that. Where did your mom come from? Her mom. And where did her mom come from? Her mom. And where did her mom come from? You get the picture. It goes back ad infinitum, ad nauseum. You know, there's three evidences for the existence of God. Existence itself, creation. Jesus Christ, the Lord. The Bible says that Jesus came and he represents God. Jesus is the perfect representation. If you want to know what God thinks ask what Jesus thinks. If you want to know how God behaves, look at how Jesus behaves. If you want to know how God feels about you and your circumstances and your life and your marriage, look at what Jesus thinks and feels and does for you. And and the third thing is the Bible. It's the word of God. It's the revelation. It It is an accurate revelation of the mind of God and the heart of God and the witness of God and the testimony of God. And the reality is you could burn every Bible on the planet Earth. And you could You could do your best to never have to think about Jesus and never have to think about his love and never have to think about his resurrection. But every time you drag your sorry self out of bed and you look in the mirror, every time you look at the sky, every time you look at the ground, every time you look at yourself, every time you look at anything at any time, there is a constant nagging reminder. There's a God and he loves you. There's a God and he loves you. There's a creator. He's created you. He's created you and he didn't create you to be empty and lonely. He didn't create you to go to hell. He created you to go to heaven. You see... Theologians speak of this new birth as being monergistic. It's a big theological word. But it just simply means that there's only one way that this salvation experience works. It's the work of God. It's God's Holy Spirit. A baby can't be born by his or her own will. A baby is born by the activity of two people, a mom and a dad. In our world of modern science and even advanced technology, somebody could say, I don't need a mom, I don't need a dad, I have a petri dish and I have, well, a sample. But guess what? You still need the sample. You still need the seed and you still need the egg. But it's the Spirit of God and the Word of God that unite to produce a new life because there's a spirit-determined legacy. Look what it says in verse 24, because all flesh is grass, not medical marijuana. That's not the meaning of this text. For those of you who go, well, is medical marijuana in the Bible? The answer is no. But what about in Genesis where it talks about the herb of the field, dude? (laughs) Clearly there's an indirect reference, but that's not the meaning. It's actually a contrast of something temporal and eternal. Something that perishes and something that doesn't perish. The living word, the enduring word, the powerful word has its source in the living, unchanging, powerful, and personal God. So you know what Peter is doing? He's quoting Isaiah chapter 40 verses 6 and 7. And the passage in Isaiah reads this way. The voice said... Cry. And he said. What shall I cry? And the voice said. All flesh is grass. And all the goodliness thereof is as of the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades. Now we don't usually call people flesh. We call them people. The reason why the Bible uses that term is it's drawing emphasis to the material nature of human beings. Plants grow quickly. They produce a flower. And make no mistake about it, the flower is beautiful. It's okay. This is going to be one of those times where you can raise your hand. How many of you enjoy flowers and love flowers? Okay, great. How many of you are bitterly resentful that they don't last long? Some of you, some of you, some of you, that really bothers you. Hey, I like them. But then they die. And it seems like a waste of time. So I like chocolate better. (laughs) Hey, but the chocolate is consumed and then it's pretty much gone as well. The emphasis is on the temporal. The songwriter might produce a song that's sung for a very long time. The writer may write a book that's read for a very long time. The movie maker may make a film that lasts a very long time. The glory of man are those things that he or she can make that appear attractive and acceptable and honorable. And we live in a culture and a society where stars don't want to just be stars of stage and screen. They also want to come to a place where they can place their hands in the cement on Hollywood Boulevard so that people can notice them for a very, very long time. Do you think that's new to our culture? Do you think people have always wanted to say, hey, look, I want to survive past this generation. I want people to think about me and know me of who I am and and what I am. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that the glory of the man as the flower of the grass, it is temporal, it is temporal, it is not eternal. And you weren't made that way. You were made to last forever. It was someone said, know this, though love is weak and hate is strong, yet hate is short and love is long. It was the poet Robert Browning who said, What's earth, with all of its art and verse, music, worth, compared with love, found, gained, and kept? And there's the rub, even for Robert Browning. Human love found, human love gained, human love kept is still temporal. Temporary human love in this world might make poverty bearable, but it will pass. Albert Einstein devoted his life to math and physics and the study of gravity, but even this genius admitted, gravitation cannot be held responsible for people falling in love. (laughs) Even the greatest scientist who ever lived said, hey, look, there are limits to what we can do. I deeply admire George Washington Carver. He wrote... Anything will give up its secrets if you love it enough. Not only have I found that when I talk to the little flower or to the little peanut, they will give up their secrets. But I have found that when I silently commune with people, they give up their secrets also if you love them enough. And this is what John writes. John says, Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. The whole point is God loves us. In verse 25, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. The word of the Lord lasts forever. That's the point. And if the word of God lives in you and abides in you, Peter makes the point that you live forever. And the only thing that will last forever is God's will and God's word and God's work. And the saving word is the gospel. By the way, Peter uses the word rhema rather than logos. It's a broad reference to the scripture. And remember, Jesus said, most assuredly, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and will not pass into judgment or will not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. And so the born again believer possesses this life of the spirit and the life of the spirit purges us from sin and the life of the spirit gives us the ability to live forever. But it also gives us the ability to love forever, not just God but each other. In the opening chapter, Peter said, live steadfastly in hope in verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace which is coming to you through Jesus. But we're not only to live steadfastly, but we're to live in sensitivity, in holiness, in verses 14 through 21. And then we live sincerely in harmony. And some things are essential to Christian harmony. Purity. Truth. And love. And Peter says, Look, you're all members of the same family, and you all have the same love. And so, love each other with the same heart. In a few short verses, Paul is going to give us a laundry list of what not to do. But it's really important that you meditate on what you can do. You know, it's not often that I get to go to a baseball game, but last week I got to see our Rockies lose to the World Series champs, the Boston Red Sox. Now, to our credit, we won two of the three games. But when I was watching the game, I remembered reading a long time ago about another Red Sox player. It was July 15, 1986. Roger Clemens was a right-handed pitcher in his first All-Star game. And in the second inning, he came to bat something he hadn't done in many years because the American League's designated hitter rule. And he took a few uncertain practice swings, and then he looked at the pitcher, Dwight Gooden, who just the previous year had won the Cy Young Award. And Gooden wound up, and he threw a white-hot fast ball right past Clemens, and with an embarrassed smile on his face, Clemens stepped out of the batter's box. And he asked the catcher, Gary Carter, he said is that what my pitches look like? (laughs) And Gary Carter said, you bet they do. And Clemens bravely stood at the plate and struck out. (laughs) But he went on to pitch three perfect innings because he knew how intimidating a 99-mile-an-hour fastball can be. You know, there's only a handful of people on the planet Earth who can hit a 99-mile-an-hour fastball. But there's even fewer people who can throw a 99-mile-an-hour fastball. The reason why I bring this up is because when he saw what a 99-mile-an-hour fastball could do, It created a boldness inside of him that he was going to pitch and he was going to let his pitching do his speaking for him. You know, there is something amazing about a Christian who lives in hope and who lives in holiness and who lives in harmony. There is something amazing about a man or a woman who live their life in the certainty that, hey, guess what? Jesus is real. Sin can be forgiven. Heaven is real. I can experience it. His love is real. I can share it. You know what? When you live in hope, when you live in holiness... When you live in harmony, you take the world's breath away. They look at you and they want your life and they want your love. Will you be able to share it? Do you know the source of your salvation? Do you know that you've been chosen by the Father? Do you know you've been made holy by the Spirit? Do you know that you've been cleansed by the blood? Are you able to point to the guarantee of salvation and have you are able to demonstrate the joy of salvation? Are you able to talk about the theme of salvation in the Bible? Are you able to share about the angel's curiosity of salvation? Do you are you able to Communicate the response of God's glorious gift of Jesus Christ in your salvation. You see, this is why I'm saying there's really two kinds of people. Those who are really saved. And you are. Or you're not. And singing songs can't make you saved. And me preaching sermons can't make you saved. Only God can save you. There's something that only God can do, and that's save you. But there's something that even God can't do. God won't bring you to a place of repentance and belief and obedience. The Bible does say that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance, There is a mechanism whereby you hear the gospel and you respond. But when the invitation is given, it requires a response nonetheless. A willingness to believe the gospel. This is why the Bible says, for as many as received him, he gave the right to be called the children of God. In order for you to receive Jesus, you have to believe the gospel. But you also have to be willing to turn from your sin. And you also have to be willing to embrace this new life in the spirit. This isn't something I talk you into. This is something that you are or you're not. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person who's listening to the sound of my voice. There are those who have received the gospel and they're born again. They've been purged from their sin and given new life. And so a provision has been made to be given the very very substance necessary to provide love for one another. And then there are those who haven't. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you would extend that invitation by the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that they would hear the gospel and that they would believe it. That the doubts and the emptiness and the darkness and the wickedness could be changed forever into a glorious hope and new life. Forgiveness and a new relationship. Lord, I don't know what is causing a person to doubt or to not believe, but I do know this. I do know this, that if people will believe and receive, they will believe the gospel and receive the invitation that, Lord, you will do that work that only you can do, a work of transformation, a work of life, a work of love. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.